Welcome to a new edition of the Neon Jazz Interview Series with jazz multi-instrumentalist, producer, arranger, and podcaster, Leo Sidron. In a very open conversation, he spoke about his latest 2018 CD, Cool School, featuring the music of Michael Franks, and growing up as the son of the legendary music man and jazz interviewer, Ben Sidron out there in Madison, Wisconsin. He delved into quite a bit about his life, like his start in music by writing songs professionally as a teenager for the Steve Miller Band and many other tales and journeys. It was a very illuminating talk, so please get to know him and dig this interview, my friends. Again, Leo, thanks for taking a minute out. It's a pleasure and an honor to speak with you, man. It's my pleasure. Thanks for asking me. Absolutely, Matt. So let's go ahead and dive right into Cool School. Great album. Great concept. Uh, I just I love what's going on with this album. So talk to me from the beginning of this, the conception, the idea of this album, to the fruition of it out now. Michael Franks was always uh, somewhat present to me from the time I was a boy, even before I thought of myself as an artist. He belongs to a generation that includes, you know, some luminary uh, musicians and songwriters and singers, and I count my father among them. So. I always considered Michael to be kind of part of the same school, really, that my dad was a part of and that I grew up uh, being made aware of. And as a matter of fact, I mean, I guess I should just say, I know that your listeners may be aware of my father because I know you spoke to him last year, but my dad, Ben Sidron, is a piano player and a singer as well. So when I was growing up, I remember occasionally people would even confuse the two of them. And at, at the odd concert of my father's, maybe somebody in the audience would request Popsicle Toes, which was Michael's successful song. So, I mean, I, I always had kind of an awareness of Michael. And then when I started writing my own songs and making records, the comparison continued, and some people kind of gently said, oh, you know, you should check out Michael if you haven't, or are you digging him? Because I think he has um, that sort of similar phrasing and aesthetic point of view that I that I consider that my dad has. But he also had a kind of romantic aspect of what he was doing, and he loved Brazilian music. That was very clear. And I also loved Brazilian music from the time I started making my own music. I got really deep into Bossa Nova and Latin music. So Michael has been kind of just accompanying me through my own little personal journey from, from the beginning. A few years ago, I made an album of my own original material called Mucho Leo, which isn't overtly a jazz album, although there are elements of it that resonated with with the jazz audience. And particularly in Europe, I started spending time in France, where Michael Franks, as it turns out, is still very much on the minds of the jazz critics, at least, and the radio DJs and a lot of the people that are kind of listening to contemporary vocal jazz music. They still really love Michael. Not that he's not loved in the States, but I, I, was, I was surprised to find out how many people in France were talking about him. And that's where this record really came alive because I I would go to France and play gigs and journalists, people in the audience asked me about Michael Franks. Do I, do I know about him? Do I know what he's up to? Do I listen to him? And from there, I started to really think about what it would mean to, to do an album of Michael's material. And I really dove in. The other thing I'll say just in terms of setting the stage for why and how I made a Michael Franks tribute record and, and why I did it right now is that the the producer of Michael's kind of iconic first records on, on Warner Brothers was Tommy LaPuma, 
who was also very present in my life growing up, and particularly in the last few years. He, he passed away last year, but in the last few years of his life, I had the privilege to spend a lot of time with him and be with him and, and, and help him on a few projects. And when he passed away last year, almost immediately I determined that as part of a, a way to pay tribute to him, I wanted to do this Michael Franks album, which had been kind of bang, knocking around, and I'd been thinking about doing it. But really, when Tommy died, I, I realized that this was the moment to to, um, to make this record. So the conception and the actual the, the the journey to the reality of it is true improv. You know, you were you're paying homage, and it was an idea. So yeah, that's cool. So let me ask you this: You were born and raised in Madison. Your dad is obviously a towering figure in jazz and done a lot of interviews, made a lot of albums, and very influential. So let me ask you this. Was it a foregone conclusion as you were growing up that you were going to walk in the footsteps and be in the music industry, or were you kind of, you know, kind of out there to do whatever you felt like your heart wanted your life to become? Yeah, I mean, I think the answer could maybe be yes to both, in in the sense that uh, I was absolutely encouraged to do whatever I wanted to do, and I seem to take it as a kind of foregone conclusion that this is what I would do. I don't know that my parents were overtly pushing. I know they didn't push me to do it. I'm, I know they encouraged me to do whatever I wanted to do. And, and really, I wanted to be making music. But even before that, my memory is that I just wanted to be in the room with the musicians. I was so interested in the people. And I loved the the feeling when... I was around musicians. In a lot of ways, I think that I kind of got it together to be a musician so that I could be with other musicians and, and basically hang out with, with my dad and his, and his friends. It was a kind of foregone conclusion in the sense that, although I, I have a degree in history from the University of Wisconsin, I had no intention of ever doing anything other than being a musician. And I, I, I really never even thought about what a plan B would look like. You know, it's interesting that you mentioned the, the kind of proclivity towards being around a musician because the, yeah. the unique ability of all the abilities that your dad has is that he can disarm these massive titans of music and make them human. That had to be a part of a very humbling, I would think, looking in mm-hmm. and seeing how that happens would be a very humbling experience. Yeah, it's hum- it's humbling in the sense that well, I mean, there's a few ways to answer that. It's hum- it's always humbling being ar- and being around my father and thinking about what he has been able to do, really on the power of his personality and his love of the musicians and the music. You know, he was really driven by a kind of love, and so that that's humbling. But you know, the other thing that he always told me and showed me was that musicians are people. You know, and he demystified a lot of that. I think as you. You know, the way you described it, that he was able to disarm the masters, I feel that same way about it. But I think the way he did that was by by look, seeing them as just as people and, and revealing their humanity. And we, I think we forget that sometimes. That As Tommy Labuma used to say, Miles Davis put his pants on one leg at a time just like everybody else. Well, I think that's the fascinating thing about talking to musicians is at the end of the day, when you do try to get to the essence of them, you realize that people are people are people. We're all human. We're all catching flights. We're all paying bills. Mm -hmm. We're all doing those things that are very human, but we all have these talents that go along with it. But at the end of the day, I think 
the, the beauty of the jazz world is that there's a level of being humble and human that's very unique. I don't know that I've ever seen it in any profession as prevalent as I have in jazz, and it's a beautiful thing because that torch gets carried on, and I think a part of that torch with the youth is recognizing don't get big about it, just just mm-hmm. do it, you know? Because there's always something to strive for, you know? I, that's what I've always found among the musicians that that I've known is that they're they're always working to improve if anything, I think the, the the most talented musicians I've been around are the ones who are the most humble in a lot of ways, or the or the 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 slowest to acknowledge, uh, you know that they that they've achieved what they want to achieve. That, that there's always something else that they're that they're looking to do or or to to improve upon. The craft is ongoing, you know. I am so privileged to con- to be a a part of the jazz community, particularly because. It wasn't something, although I did set out to be a musician, I didn't particularly aim to be a jazz musician. Uh, I mean, I have been a jazz drummer and played with my father for years, but but I, I feel so fortunate right now to be considered in the world of the jazz community right now. It, it's very meaningful to me. So backing up that statement, you know, you started yeah. out as a teenager with Steve Miller, who was a titan yeah. in the world of music and really got baptized in that world. Talk to me about how all of that came about. Certainly my early development really does hang on the hook of, of my father. My dad and Steve Miller had gone to college together and worked together in the late 60s, early 70s. And in the mid-80s, they kind of came together again to do this jazz album for Steve called Born to be Blue. It was Steve's last album that he made on Capitol. And it was really an album that was built around my father and his touring band at the time it was a jazz album so when i was 13 or 14 my dad went on the road with steve and i started tagging along i spent my summers in middle school and early high school on the bus just hanging out and and being it was kind of like a version of summer camp for me and while i was spending those summers on the road i got interested in writing songs i mean i was just standing on the stage every night listening to Steve's songs and, and they were they were influencing me, I'm sure. The other thing that happened was that Steve had put a, an early version of a portable studio on his uh, tour bus. This was like in the early 90s, just as the technology was shifting and you could put a, a decent multi-track recording setup in a couple of flight cases, which at the time seemed really amazing. And he put them on the bus because he thought maybe he was going to write some songs and nobody bothered to learn or could could figure out how to work this stuff, except me. I was like 13 or 14, and I just spent a summer learning how to use this recording equipment to to be able to, I guess I was thinking maybe help Steve record his songs. And in the end, what ended up happening was I would go on the bus and write my own songs. I guess another part of the story is that Steve, although they were promoting the jazz album, what they discovered when they went on the road was that the audience had kind of shifted and the classic rock radio format had started to become really popular. So his, Steve's songs were reaching a new audience, and that audience was about my age. So here I was writing songs, being influenced by Steve's music, and you know, it turned out that his audience was essentially my generation. And what ended up happening was I wrote a, a bunch of songs that Steve recorded. He actually recorded like 15 of them, and four of them ultimately record, uh, appeared on this album of his in 1993 called Wide River. And that was my first professional gig as a teenager writing songs for Steve Miller. 
So from there, you move on to the University of Wisconsin. You study history and Spanish, and then you live in Spain for some time. Talk to me about what you learned in a university setting about music and how important that trip to Spain was for you. Great. These are great questions. Well, at the University of Wisconsin, I was studying history and Spanish also, but I was also hanging out with all of the music students. I was not a music student, and I just got lucky, I guess, in a way that there weren't so many drummers. I was playing drums also. There's a whole parallel part of my development, which was as has been as a drummer. And in high school, at the same time I was starting to write pop songs like the one Steve recorded, I was also starting to play drums along with my dad. And a big part of the reason I stayed at the University of Wisconsin, I grew up in Madison, I stayed there for college, was that I had started to get really comfortable playing these gigs with my dad. And we were playing together a lot. So all through college, I was playing gigs with Ben and and also with these music students. And uh, I was welcomed into the, the kind of music community, the jazz community in Madison, and spent a lot of time playing with music students, even though I wasn't technically one of them. So I was studying history and I was studying music at the same time. In a way, I sort of felt them as being related. I don't know. I don't really know why I felt that, but I, I didn't feel. I felt a huge freedom at the time to just explore all of what was interesting to me. And I guess to an extent, I felt like I was part of history by continuing to play jazz. I felt like I was con- I was part of a historical timeline just by making a decision to be a musician. The major shift for me occurred when I went to Spain, my junior year in college. I went and I lived in, in the south of Spain in Seville. And I feel really fortunate that I was there at a time when the Internet just wasn't quite as much of a thing. I mean, I had an email account, I guess, but you really disappeared into another country. If you moved to another country, you, you were there. You know, you, there, you, there was really almost no way to stay connected back home. And I, I went native. I just went fully Spanish. I, I really wanted to be considered like a local. The biggest compliment anybody could pay to me when I lived there was that I seemed Spanish. And my Spanish got really good. And, and I also dove deep in the musical scene there. And I was playing drums with some local guys in Seville, which really turned me on my head because while I had a very fluent and native understanding of what, at least what jazz was supposed to feel like, I didn't have any concept of what flamenco was like, and these guys were all totally aware of flamenco, and everything they did was like a fusion of flamenco and something else. So I kind of learned what it meant to be the stranger in the room or the outsider, both musically and personally, but it also just kind of opened up my my musical conception. And ultimately, that's how I found Brazilian music. Strangely, by being in, in Spain, I, I realized that a lot of the the guitar players and the, and the songwriters that I was listening to there were also influenced by Brazilian music. So I, I actually discovered Jobim by moving to Spain. And I wrote songs furiously while I was there. I was just, it was probably the most intense creative output I ever had was the year that I lived there. So after I moved back home, I was kind of armed with, a, you know, a suitcase full of these songs and a new musical approach and I also had had no access to any kind of technology, like I had been recording, using recording technology from the time I was in high school, from the time I learned how to do it on the bus with Steve. And my whole musical approach was built around computers and being able to record multiple tracks, overdubbing and all that stuff. And when I went to Spain, I just, 
all I had was a, a nylon string guitar and I had some sticks and I think maybe a couple cymbals I brought with me and the local cats that I was playing with helped me put together a little makeshift drum set that I played. But I was really down to like very few resources and that that was very helpful for me to look inward and kind of figure out who I was musically. So you come back, you co-produce a song that won an Oscar for the Motorcycle Diaries, and then you move to Brooklyn, and yeah. you start producing all kinds of music for film, television, and commercials. So my question is, what kind of doors open up after an Oscar win, and was that corollary to you moving on to Brooklyn and doing a lot of work for, you know, when you get into that realm of film, TV, and commercials, your, your audience explodes. So how is all that corollary? The Oscar opened doors and probably could have opened more if I if I knew what doors I was trying to should should have been opening and also if I had ever even intended for that to happen. I worked on that song from the Motorcycle Diaries with this artist who I had discovered while I was a student in Spain. His name is Jorge Drexler, and he he was really the songwriter who completely changed things for me. He he was the guy that led me to explore. Brazilian music like I was talking about and it just so happens that I went from being a fan of his to a friend of his and working with him and through that uh, relationship and that friendship I I ended up working on this song for the Motorcycle Diaries he was he got a call to write the song we were we happened to be spending some time together when it happened and he invited me to to produce it with him you know none of that pointed to an Academy Award or writing music for film or any of that. It was just, I dug this guy. I loved his music. I, I loved having an opportunity to, to to work with him. And one thing led to another. It was nominated for an Oscar and it won. So I didn't really know what to do after it won. I mean, I knew that there was some opportunity there, but I wasn't really sure where I should go. I was still living in Madison at the time. I, I didn't know if I should, should I go to LA? Should I should I stay in Madison? Should I go to New York? I, I didn't have a, any kind of concept of what it was going to mean for me. And actually, it was my now my wife, but my girlfriend at the time, who sort of said, well, why don't we go to New York? You know, you we always talk about it. This seems like a, a good time. So I came to New York, and I knocked on doors. But, you know, of course, the doors that I had always thought to knock on were like the jazz doors and the, and the record business doors. So I, I, I was I spent the first six months here going to record labels and kind of trying to position myself as a as an international record producer. That's kind of what I thought I was going to do. But it turns out that when you work on something that wins an Oscar, the the real doors that are available to you are the ones in film and TV. And particularly television, I think, looks to the Academy Awards as the kind of the holy grail. So I ended up kind of unintentionally getting into, you know, writing music for documentary film, and a lot of TV commercials. That turned out to be the thing that, the, the door that opened for me. It was an area that I didn't know was even a thing. I didn't know that it was um, a, a place that, that you would even try to to, uh, to break into. And, and it, it also happened at a transitional time in the business when I started writing music for, for TV commercials. It was something that you would never admit to anybody. It seemed like a kind of a shameful secret. And now, Almost every artist I know is asking me how they can get into it because it's one of the last areas where there's any uh, way to make a living of any kind. It's just the music business has completely changed in the last 10 years. In, a, in the career of a musician, aren't those accidents some of the best things that can happen to you? 
I think they're the only things that you can't really predict. Look, I would nev- never have predicted that, I, you know, that one day I would make an album of Michael Frank's material and that you and I would be having this conversation right now. All, all of what's been unfolding for me has been a series of happy accidents. And the, and the only kind of, if there's any wisdom at all, I don't know that I have any, but the, the only kind of truth that, that seems to, to, that I'm able to follow is that when I do the things that I love or that, you know, I'm, I'm driven to do because they're just, they're simply interesting to me, not, be, not because I think they're going to provide opportunity. Those are the, the projects and those are the things that tend to lead, lead me forward. And in, in the, in the cases when I've actually sort of chased opportunity, it doesn't really lead to anything. So let me ask you this. You've, you've had the chance to produce a lot of your dad's albums. What is it like yeah. to go from being, you know, his child and watching him yeah. do what he does and that traditional relationship to be a peer? I don't know when that shifted exactly. I mean, he and I have been very close. I've felt really close to him the whole time. I, I'm, I don't have any siblings. He, he really has been my best friend. It wasn't like there was ever a, a meeting, you know, where we sat down and, and rewrote the contract or anything like that. It's just been a kind of a slow evolution. I think that we just know each other really well. I mean, the way I work with him is unlike the way I work with other people. There's so much that doesn't get talked about when when the two of us work together. And I think in general, we kind of give one another a lot of space to do to, to be to be ourselves to do what we do. I mean, I I know his way of working and the way he likes to feel, and um, and I just try when we work together. I just try to to set that up, you know. And interestingly, he's also extremely supportive and important behind the scenes in a lot of what I do. I mean, he doesn't have a credit on my on the Michael Frank Cool School album. He's not credited anywhere, but on the other hand, he was he was sort of ever present through the whole thing in a way that almost doesn't have uh there's no there's no type job description for what it was it, it, it's just is it friendship is it mentorship is it uh creative uh collab collaboration in some way or guidance you know it's the roles are not very definite with us but we we're we are peers no question we we have become partners so you've touched on that notion of wisdom and and playing with folks like Clark Perry, David Fathead Newman, Phil Woods, (laughs) Matthew Pack. You play with a lot of people. So what did you get from those musicians that have helped you teach younger musicians that you get around? Tremendous generosity. I mean, all of the people that we're talking about, Phil Woods, Frank Morgan, Phil Upchurch, I played with a lot when I was young, Richard Davis, who was in Madison, so many were incredibly generous with me in their spirit, in what they would say to me, how encouraging they were. You know, some some people I, I I played with when I was younger were very specific about what they wanted from me, particularly as a drummer, and they had very direct, pointed advice. And then others were much more... Most Most of the musicians were just, like, totally welcoming and encouraging and enthusiastic and gave me a sense that this was something that I could do and should do and it was important and that there was a kind of uh, responsibility to do it well, but that I was welcome to it. And I mean, I think that in a sense, what I 
feel like I, I maybe am able to represent, and I know other musicians of my generation, particularly those who grew up in musical families like that, like I did, you know, maybe share this a little bit that a big part of what I, what I got from all of those older musicians, particularly when I was coming up was just a sense of what it was like to be in the room with them and how they interacted with one another and what it felt like to be with them. And those are the kinds of things I think that are harder to come by in, uh, in a more traditional music education setting. Like I think a lot of players are coming through today. I think, you know, there's no question we have incredible musicianship right now, but it's just harder to, to find that older generation and just feel what it feels like to be in the room with them, you know? Talk to me about your popular podcast, The Third Story, where you get to interview musicians and producers and songwriters. How does that venture feed into your creative ed? Yeah, enormous. It feeds, feeds the whole thing in a way I couldn't have predicted. As you mentioned, you know, one of the things that my dad did when I was growing up was he interviewed just the legends, you know, Miles and Dizzy and Max Roach and Art Blakey and Herbie. You know, he just, he talked to so many greats and, and even though I thought I would be good at it, I was careful to jump into that pool for a while because I'm, I'm already, there's so many comparisons to make and I just thought, oh, do I want to even make another one? But it became clear to me that it was something I, sh- I should start to explore again because I was just so personally compelled to do it. I just really wanted to do it, and that really came up because when I when I started doing production music, music for film and TV, I found that before every session in the studio, I would have these great, you know, forty five minute conversations with players, and often at the end of the day, when I look back at my sort of my favorite moment in the day. Yeah, the sessions were great, but the conversations were also, you know, memorable and and important and meaningful. And I thought I'm missing out on this, all of this, I'm capturing all of these great conversations. So that's really where I was when I started. I thought maybe what I'll do is I'll have musicians come over and we'll record and then we'll do an interview. But very quickly, I realized that the interviews themselves are like a kind of their own project. And I, I think of them as kind of like a jam session, like a conversational jam session sometimes or a conversational co-write a conversational you know interpersonal gig that that i'm playing with somebody and i i really i feel like i'm in my own kind of graduate school i i've learned so much from these conversations i think about them so regularly they really fuel me creatively and personally and i hope that and i have to think that you know to the extent that they are reaching other people and that other people are are getting anything out of it it's it's the same thing that that the same kind of wisdom that I'm taking out of these conversations is, you know, applies to other people's lives as well. But I, I mean, I'm in it for, for very personal reasons. I, I just love having these conversations. I'm sure you can relate. Oh yeah, this, this is it, there. There is no greater thrill than to have the, the the discourse and to have these conversations. And the thing that I was doing when I started this show in 2011. I've always loved yeah. jazz, but I knew I was walking into a realm that I didn't know enough about. You never do. You were always learning, but yeah. I didn't want to open a book to find out about it. I wanted to hear it from the timbre of the voice, yeah. from the experience on the road, and to see beyond, like, why did you pick these notes and these measures and this harmony for yeah. this song, but why are you who you are? How is yeah. it that that human connection to who you are 
become something translatable in a language that we all share. And yeah. it's the one language that unifies and actually creates some level of harmony on this planet. And those mm-hmm. that create it have a story that's unique and it transcends any kind of narrative that can be written in a book, you know. So mm-hmm. that I think that's the key. I think that's the fun part of all of this. Um, you know, you say something that that I, I absolutely thought about also, which was, yeah, I, do I know enough? To, am I qualified to do this? And, you know, that goes back to this thing with uh, my father was so informed. I mean, he had such a deep formation in the music, and, and I have a sort of peripheral formation. I, I learned it all just by being around it. I was never an obsessive student of the music. I was more, you know, interested in the life. And But, but what I have discovered is that you can ask pretty much anybody anything and they'll answer it. And, and they're often generally quite happy that you asked. Absolutely. I agree. You know, there's a lot of moments in your life that are very important that motivate you, not only as a musician, but as a person. And one of those is going to see live shows. Talk to me about mm-hmm. live jazz that you've witnessed firsthand that really made a deep impression on you. Well, that's an interesting question. You know what I find in general? I mean, I live in the sort of jazz mecca capital of the world. This is the place where everybody goes to hear music, and and I certainly try um, to take advantage of it. But I find that a lot of the musical experiences that resonate with me more deeply and that I that I think about are the ones that I I have and have had when I'm traveling. I think there's something about being taken out of your, you know regular routine and going uh, to hear music that has always been really powerful to me. So I can think of a lot of the the sort of most significant musical experiences that I've had both recently and certainly developing happened, you know, either when I was living in Spain or when I go on the road and I have a night off and I go and hear some music. Like, for example, last year, last summer while I was in Paris working on the cool school, I had a night off and I went to go hear Julian Lage the guitar player play. And, and I mean, he plays in New York all the time. I could easily go hear him here, but there was something about it, the experience of hearing him in Paris and seeing him and seeing how that music, which is very American. It's, it is, he is basically moving through all of these idioms of the guitar that feel extremely American, how it felt to hear it in Paris. And I, I mean, I was just, I was, totally knocked out and affected by that concert. I think that may be one of the most recent things that I saw that is, like, really staying with me. Beautiful. So let me ask you generically, why do you love jazz? Well, there's, like, so many ways to answer that. That's a, that's a good question. If you ask, I don't know if you do, but if you ask all of your guests that, you'll, you could probably end up with a book just of answers to that one question. Yes. Um, <laughs> I mean, the first thing to me is that it is almost like like a family member to me. Like when I remember when I was, I realized how familiar and important it was to me when I, when I was living in Spain that year in college, because I realized that like, as long as I could go somewhere and hear the sound of a saxophone or, or hear the, the, the swing rhythm, hear people swinging, hear people playing, speaking in that language, I would, I wouldn't be alone. I, I felt, I felt connected to something. And that's when I realized that, it's like uh, it's a language that I, I just grew up speaking. It's almost like hearing your grandmother's voice, eating your mother's food. You know, that, that's, what it, that's what it represents to me personally. And like I said, before I chose to be a musician, I sort of 
or before I chose the music, I sort of chose to be a musician in a funny way. So jazz has just been a kind of native tongue for me. It's just been around me. And, and certainly, like I say, music that swings, music that is related to the blues, it's just very familiar to me. The other thing about it, though, is that there's something about it, both playing it and listening to it, that encourages individuality, encourages freedom, encourages communication, uh, is intrinsically democratic. You know, in one of my conversations last year, the trombone player, Ryan Cabrilli, told me that he feels that jazz is also uh, always radical music and always protest music, or can always be a form of protest. And I think in part it's because of the, the freedom. But what I've always felt is like it's, it's, a, it's a kind of music that not only encourages you to be yourself, but it actually demands it of you, that you look into yourself and find your own identity. And when you do, that's when you really start to contribute. That's when you really start to, to, be, to, to really be doing it, you know? And, and that, that's a very unique and special kind of music that encourages that or even demands it, that you learn how to speak a language, but that you also find your own personal way of speaking it. And when you do, you've contributed to that language. I mean, that, that's, that's a beautiful thing. Yeah, absolutely. So everyone has a version of you, your family, your friends, your yeah. fans, your coworkers, yeah. but you're the one that's leading your life. So who do you think you are? What's your perception of you? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I felt for a long time like that, that was very undefined because I was just interested in so many things. I mean, I've always just been kind of interested in, in a lot of different things and I, and I, I didn't take any time to think about whether or not they needed to be related to one another or not. So there, there was a period, even not so long ago, when I was writing commercials and producing singer-songwriters and playing bebop drums and and uh, thinking, what, what does this add up to? I mean, what 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 does this look like to somebody? I don't really know if if any of those any one thing is is me, but I am feeling like they're all kind of starting to feel related to one another. I. I don't really have a, an answer to what I am. As I say, I don't even necessarily know that it's musical. I, I'm, I love being around music, but I think it's, it's people that I love being around even more than music. I think I, I, like, I like somehow drawing something out of people or, or creating something with people, and I think that's why doing the conversations is kind of the same thing to me as making music. I think there's something about me that is drawn to connect with people and learn, learn through that experience. Beautiful. Leo, I think that's a great way to wrap everything up. Thank you for taking a minute out to open up your creative Pandora box and talk to the Neon Jazz audience. Man, I appreciate it. I'm, as I said at the beginning, it's really an honor to talk to you, and I, I really appreciate what you're doing. I, um, I became aware of you last year, but I'm, I'm, I'm definitely aware of what you're up to, and I love these conversations that you're doing and please don't stop thanks for listening and tuning in to yet another neon jazz interview where we give you a bit of insight into the finest players in wisconsin kansas city and spots all over the globe giving fans all that jazz and thanks to leo for his music his interviews and his cool if you want to hear more interviews please go to famous interviews with joe domino on the itunes store visit neon jazz at youtube.com and for ever and for everything neon jazz go to the neon jazz.blogspot.com until next time, enjoy the jazz, my friends. Me, I attended the cool school. 
Neon Jazz.